Please continue to stand with me as we read from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. This is the word of God. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and all had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's go before the Lord in prayer that we'll be prepared to hear from him this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would enable and empower me to preach your word, not in my strength, but yours, for the glory of your name. Please bless your people with ears to hear. Give us greater insight into this Glorious text. Remove all distractions that we might hear. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. If you're visiting with us, we're delighted you're here. We want to welcome you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ as we continue in our study through the book of Acts. I'm having examined thus far the event of Pentecost, which is the birth of the new covenant, the inauguration of the last days. We witnessed the torrential downpour of the Holy Spirit, unlike never before, on the day of Pentecost, and then Peter's sermon to explain the phenomenon. And his preaching, as we took note of, was Christ-centered exposition. Preaching from the book of Joel and a number of Psalms, he preached Christ. And it was preaching that cut to the heart with deep conviction of those gathered together in the temple courts on that day. People cried in desperation, brothers, what are we to do? And without hesitation, Peter said, repent each one of you and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent. It means a change of mind. Repent means a a turning of allegiance away from sin, 
away from self, away from God's substitutes, repent of that and turn unto God and his gospel of grace. Peter, if you notice, (laughs) did not apologize for demanding that people repent. He wasn't concerned about stepping on sensitive toes, as many do in our day, unlike many preachers who work overtime to ensure that feelings of conviction not be experienced. You'll never hear many in our day preach repent. Peter has no problem with that. And on that day, verse 41, what do we read? Look at it. There were added about 3,000 souls. To what were they added, beloved? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church. Now, when we use the word church, we soon realize in our day that many different people mean many different things when they say or hear the word church. To some, um, it's a building for religious events. To others, it's a kind of spiritual fraternity or, or sorority club. That is not the church, beloved. The church is not a social club. It's not another benevolent charity like the United Way or the Red Cross. The church is not a gathering of spectators, and it's certainly not a place to gather for the sake of being entertained. The church is a people redeemed through the shameful crucifixion of God's much-loved son who purchased his church with his blood, who died, was buried, who was raised up again and ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he sent his Holy Spirit to enable us to understand what it is he has done for without which you cannot believe. Without the Spirit of God, you will not believe, but by the grace of God. This morning you're here, most of you. Believe. Hence, many who claim to be part of the church, that is, many who claim to be Christian, are not. After all, Jesus said, Um, His church will always contain some tares among the wheat. That is, false converts among those who are truly his, as our brother Ray addressed this morning in Sunday school for Matthew chapter 7. But the true church, beloved, is Christ's church. He, Colossians 1.18, he, Jesus, is the head of the body, which is the church. You are the body of Christ. The church of the living God, we read, is the household of God. It is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Not a truth. Truth is not relative. True truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ, we read in 1 Timothy 3.15. So by grace... We, who are his church, the people of God, have been adopted into God's own family, made members of the household of God, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. 
which means there's only one church. There's one true church, some of whom are in heaven, the church triumphant, some of whom remain on earth, the church militant, as we persevere and pilgrimage our way through this temporal world en route to glory, the church. That is, individuals around the world are one body part of the worldwide church of Jesus Christ. You are a body part. He's the head. You are parts of the body, and together the church makes up the body whole, who gather together with other believers, with other body parts of the head in local congregations. Here we are this morning. So people who have received the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, are the direct result of God's regenerating work. Amen? The regeneration of God is a gift of God. It's supernatural. That's what Jesus meant by, unless a man or woman be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. It's a supernatural work of God that comes down from heaven. So to be born again is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be born again. It's actually redundant to use both terms, born again Christian. You're not a Christian if you're not born again, says Jesus. You know, in our day, we think, are you one of those born-againers? Oh, you're really dedicated, born-againer. Look, you're, you're not saved if you're not born again. As the wind blows to and fro, Jesus said to Nicodemus, as the wind blows to and fro, you know not where it comes from nor where it goes, so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. It's a gracious, precious gift of God. So those transformed by the Holy Spirit, notice, he, the Lord, adds them to his church in verse 47. And notice, immediately they were integrated into the life of the church. So the fruit of transformation, the fruit of that glorious supernatural work, then and to this day, the fruit of the regenerating work of God, is devotion to Christ. Devotion to Christ. So how, question this morning, how is devotion to Christ, how is love for Christ made evident in and through God's people? Simple answer, by one's devotion to his church. By one's devotion to his church. That means we're committed to that which he loves. Jesus loves his church. He loves his bride. He shed his blood for his bride, for his church. And we must love what he loves. And 1 John says, don't you dare say that you love God if you hate your brother. So devotion to, to Christ's church begins with devotion to Christ himself. It's commitment to Christ that manifests, it's our commitment to Jesus Christ manifested in the way that we are committed to one another. They go hand in hand. So if you're not truly devoted to the Lord Jesus, you'll never be devoted to his church. I'm not talking about masqueraders. Anyone can masquerade as being totally dedicated to the church when they're not even in Christ, okay? But those who are truly in Christ will be devoted to the body of Christ, 
So here we see that the telltale signs of a people in the early church, their devotion to Christ was made manifest by their devotion to one another. Okay? That's what we're after this morning. So in verses 42 to 47, provide for us the key, the key in the kind of church God blesses. Verses 42 to 27. And we're given here a bird's eye view of how the early church, those graced with the gift of salvation, how they carried on, what they did, what their lives looked like, and that is defined for us in verse 42. Most of our time will be spent in verse 42. And friends, let me say this. These things are not things we do in order to get saved. These things are not things we do in order to earn salvation. Okay, am I clear, beloved, on the right? My right? Center? Left. No, you cannot earn salvation. Salvation is the gracious gift of God, the faith he imparts to us to trust in his provision of eternal life, and that is his son. That's a gift. So these things don't earn us salvation. These things are the fruit of those who have received the gift of salvation. Am I clear? Good. Now, there's four objects of devotion to be carried out. That is true devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ that expresses itself like this. Verse 42 and then the additional verses, verses 43 to 47, express how some of this looked like then. Now, I say then because some of this is descriptive and not prescriptive. Okay, for instance, Pentecost is a non-repeated event in the life of God's people. It's a one-time event. It happened then. It will never happen again. Amen. As foretold in Scripture. Describing for us a key event in redemptive history that is not to be replicated. That's what I mean by descriptive, not prescriptive. Also, we're no longer living in an age of signs and wonders taking place through the apostles, verse 43. Signs of an apostle went out with the apostles. Thank you. Not intended to be duplicated or replicated, pretended or imitated. But there are four fundamental elements to be carried out by the true church of Jesus Christ, regardless of where in the world that believer lives, and these things are that for which we, to this day, are to be occupied with. Okay? So, without these elements, verse 42, straight up, friends, you don't have a church. All you have is a crowd. There are a lot of crowds that meet, but they're not a church. They might mention Jesus' name a couple times, they might have a large sign that says church, but they adhere to none of these elements of what a church is. Therefore, they can't be defined as a church. They're merely a crowd. 
So in this passage, beloved, I want us to see the kind of church God blesses, and I want this church, Pacific Hope Church in little San Diego, California, to continue to be the kind of church we see here in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and following. Are you with me? All right. That's the introduction. So, So, somebody laughed at that. There's four things. Notice, four things that the first thing sets into motion. Four things that the first thing sets into motion. The first thing is the primary thing, and the first thing is the thing that establishes and maintains the subsequent things that make up a healthy church that God blesses. We're going to spend most of our time on the first thing. Are you ready? First thing, the church's devotion to the word of God. Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That is to say, beloved, their primary focus was doctrine. Doctrine, one of the most politically correct Incorrect words, one of the most politically incorrect words in today's modern church, doctrine. I don't know how many times I've heard. I don't need to know doctrine. I just need to know Jesus. Question, which Jesus are you talking about? The false Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses? Is that the Jesus you're talking about? The made-up Jesus of Mormonism? Is, is it that Jesus? Or the Jesus of Scripture? The central mark of the early church, friends, it was the preaching of God's Word. Apostolic doctrine, teaching. And let me say this, at the heart of every church that God blesses is the preaching of His Word. Unapologetic preaching, heralding the whole counsel of God for the glory of God, and in the end, the good of God's people. It's not secondary. It's not subsidiary. It is primary. It is the heartbeat of the church, and if any so-called church isn't defined by the preaching of God's word, that is the exposition of Holy Scripture, something other than church is taking place. I know I'm preaching to the choir because you love the word, but we're not going to skip the text, okay? Friends, there is no such thing as a spirit-filled church that isn't word-centered because to be word-centered is to be Christ-centered and to be Christ-centered is to be an expositional, preaching, spirit-filled church. What's the Holy Spirit's ministry? To highlight Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I will send the Holy Spirit and he, the Spirit, will bear witness of me. He will testify of me. He will glorify me, not himself. So to be in a church that only focuses on God, the Holy Spirit, is not a Spirit-filled church because a Spirit-filled church, a Spirit-led church, preaches Christ. 
The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, bears witness of the second, Jesus, for the glory of the first, God the Father. That's scripture. So here in Acts 2, okay, notice, those who had received the preached word, what shall we do? You, 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 you must repent. They repented, converted, baptized. About 3,000 were added, verse 41. Notice verse 42. They, the converted ones, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, it didn't stop after conversion. They had to have it. You know, one of the clear indications that someone is a genuine Christian is a hunger for the truth of God. It's a hunger for God's word. The mark of a soul that has been made alive in Christ demands nourishment for the soul that never ends. That's a sign of salvation. If it's not there, if it's not there, either you are unconverted, you're not a Christian, or you have stifled that hunger and something is desperately wrong in your spiritual life. It could be idolatry. It could be unrepentant sin. There are no other options. And let me say this. Some of you are going to be very, very encouraged this morning. Some of you are going to be probably deeply convicted, but that's good, amen? I love to be convicted. It's a sign that I'm alive in Christ. <laughs> So if you're convicted, rejoice, okay? I love you. This is the text. You see, where the Spirit of God reigns, the Word of God reigns. Where the Spirit reigns, the Word reigns. Where the Spirit reigns, a desire for the Word reigns. Now, continually devoting themselves, verse 2, that's one word in the Greek. It's a compound word with the prefix meaning face-to-face. Face-to-face with what? The word of God. Doctrine. The apostles' teaching. Notice, they were not bored. They were not disengaged. They were not checked out. They were not daydreaming. They were not napping. They were hungry. They were not wondering, when is the sermon going to be over? Why? Well, first and foremost, they're saved. They, they've been given spiritual life. They're devoted to Jesus, who is the logos. He's the word. They're devoted to Christ, feeding off of, craving God's word. And there's something very healthy about that. Look, if you will, at 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 2, on the screen. Like, notice, like newborn babies, Peter says, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to what? Your salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Important to note, the metaphor that Peter uses here does not mean immature. You know, later on, Paul will use a comparison between milk of the word and meat of the word, and he's using it with regard to the immaturity of the people. That's not how Peter uses it here. 
Peter's emphasis is, is not to stress what's being ingested. Peter here is stressing a craving, a craving, a demand for the milk of the word, like a baby longs for and cries for the milk of her mother, and she'll scream until she gets it. Craving. Question, do you have that? Or can you take it or leave it? You know, a church is a church is a church is a church. Friends, there are people right now, this morning, in churches across this land being neglected the food of God's word. They're starving to death. And those who are being malnourished and understand and realize they are starving is an indication that they possess the spirit of God. That's a good sign. They crave digestible nourishment because they have the spirit. They crave, therefore, the word for their very soul. You know, to sit under a preacher who doesn't preach, a lot of times we hear today, well, we don't preach. We like to have a conversation. Have you heard that? We don't have conversations here. We preach the word of God. So they want to have a conversation, and the preacher will provide perhaps tips for living. He'll address maybe a social or political issue with, you know, with a couple moral lessons in there somewhere. And he calls that preaching. But all the unbelievers within that kind of congregation, week in and week out, they say, amen, brother, amen. While the true people of God sit there starving to death, having to feed on this junk food. Not all that's presented as preaching passes for true preaching. I'm not talking about style. I'm not talking about volume. I'm not talking about, you know, intensity or some of the crazy ways that I might act as I preach. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about content and substance. Not entertainment and tricks and pony shows and humor. A little humor is good in context. Amen? You see, these people, these Acts 2 people, they were tuned in. They were locked into the apostles' teaching, doctrine, locked in, laser-focused, hungry, craving, because the apostles' teaching refers to content. It's keeping the main thing the main thing. Kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. Preach. Read it. Explain it. The priority of the church is the doctrine of God. It's referred to in Titus 2 as sound doctrine. Referred to in Jude 3 as the faith once for all handed down to the saints. Romans 6 is referred to as the standard of sound words. Sound theology that is correct teaching of God, of who God the Father is, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's, it's sound preaching. It's preaching on what sin is, 
who and what man is, what grace is, what forgiveness is, what justification is, what propitiation, reconciliation, glorification, sanctification, and, and, a, and a host of other doctrines to be preached and taught to God's people. You love it? Now, notice this devotion, it's a two-way street. Not only do the people desire it, not only were the people devoted to the apostles' teaching, the implication of that is that the apostles were therefore persistently devoted to teaching them. Now, when we get to Acts 6, for instance, we see that they could not be devoted to other things. They said, we cannot be devoted to other things. We read in Acts 6, verse 2, the 12 will say there, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now, someone has to serve the tables, amen? Therefore, brethren, put others in charge of this task. But we will, here it is, devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Two-way street. Devotion, both sides. Now, sometimes congregations want it. Preachers don't provide it. Sometimes preachers provide it, and congregations don't want it. But the faithful preacher, the faithful pastor, preaches whether they long for it or not. He preaches whether they yawn at it or not. He preaches whether they're indifferent to it or not, whether it's popular or not. Look with me, if you will, at 2 Timothy 4. It's on the screen, I believe. 2 Timothy 4, this is the Apostle Paul's last letter before his death to his uh, young protege, his, 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 his young student, Pastor Timothy, and he said this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accord to their own desires. You see that today? Oh, yeah, that's alive today. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things. Make sure your head is clear, young man. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. You know what he's saying? Timothy, although you minister to the people, guess what? They're not your boss. You know, I've heard, I've met pastors before, and I'll, I'll say, what are you doing? What are you preaching? Well, we're doing this, this, and this. I go, why are you doing that? He says, what's what the people want? They're the boss. No, they're not. You're not the boss. They're not the boss. Christ is the boss, and he says, preach. Preach me. Christ, crucified, dead, buried, raised up again. I have been given authority. 
in heaven above and earth below. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And I'm with you to the end of the age. See, friends, at the center of a true church is the word of God. Everything begins right here. No church will rise any higher than its pulpit. Ever. As the preaching of God's word goes, so goes the church of God. Amen? Any other priority you can be certain is way off course and eventually will derail. God's not pleased with it. It's not word-centered. See, the sacred desk, that's the, this pulpit, that's the sacred desk, the pulpit. The pulpit must be at the center of the local church. D during the Great Reformation, in many churches, the pulpit was off to the side. When the reformers came in, the first thing that many of them did was bring the pulpit back to front and center because this, this is what holds the word of God. The first thing that any true church should do to this day is have the pulpit front and center in accord to Acts 2. Some churches don't have pulpits. They say, well, it's, it's too imposing. It's too intimidating. It's too convicting. So what? Where do we get raised platforms and wooden pulpits from? Nehemiah 8. It goes back to Nehemiah 8. When the word of God was discovered, having been lost for numerous years, they brought the word out, they built an elevated platform, a pulpit, they preached the word, they explained the word, and went on among the people asking, do you understand what you've just heard? See, we, I wish we had like a 10-story building and the pulpit would be like 10 feet high. It's not to raise the man. It's to remind us that the word of God is above us and comes down to us. That's the whole point and purpose of raised platforms and pulpits. It holds God's word. This is the sacred desk. It's of first importance. Friends, th that is why as a church we emphasize the Bible. That is why in our preaching we emphasize the Bible, the word of God. That's what we emphasize in Sunday school, as we did this morning. That's why we emphasize in our midweek studies classic books about the Bible that help us to understand more of God's Word. So where the Word of God is not first and foremost central, you don't have a church, you have a crowd. So... Where the spirit lives, the spirit cannot be contained. It can't be held down. It craves, it naturally wants food. Milk of the word. So anyone who claims to be a Christian who does not crave the word of God, it is irresponsible of me or anyone else and impossible to assure them that they're truly born of God if they have no hunger for the word of God. If you have no hunger for the word of God, you don't crave the God of the word. So if that's you this morning, I say repent, turn from your allegiance of whatever that is, allegiance to your sin, allegiance to yourself and other God substitutes and turn back to Christ or perhaps for the first time turn to Christ and you'll be saved. 
Number two, devotion to the teaching of the apostles, to doctrine, expressed itself in this, the second essential element of a church that God blesses, and that is, notice, devotion to fellowship. Verse 42b, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Koinonia, close-knit relationships with the people of God, enjoying and sharing joy in the Lord together. Koinonia, not church hopping. Now, church hopping is good if you're searching for a, a sound biblical church. When I talk about church hopping, I'm talking about, I'm thinking of a guy who was here. We, we kicked him out of here a few months ago. Um, he, 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 he tried to play ecclesiastical cop. He, he, he'll come in and talks about how much he knows. And I said, what, do you want me to applaud? This is what I'm thinking. Let me applaud for you. And he, all he does is stir up trouble. And I come to find out he's been kicked out of three, four, five churches for guess what? Stirring up trouble. And I know there's guys who listen to us online and they want to check us out to perhaps come and stir trouble. So I always throw a preemptive strike out there now and again for anyone listening. If that's your intention, let me be sure to remind you or to make known to you, if that's your agenda, unless you repent, the door will not hit you on the way out because you will leave quicker than you ever came in. Because why? Our job is to protect these people. False doctrine, particular, particular doctrinal hobby horses that people have. And they disrupt unity and fellowship. Guardianship. All that to say, friends, the stronger one's vertical relationship is, the stronger your horizontal fellowship will be with the church of Christ. So if you find yourself out of fellowship with God, you will begin to find yourself out of fellowship with other believers. And God has provided this for us, amen? Fellowship. Devoted to the word, devoted to fellowship. So question, second question. Is the church primary in your Christian life? Fellow believers, <clears throat> does the church... Make up really your best friends. Who do you go to to seek counsel? I seek counsel. I have numerous friends, all Christians, that I seek counsel from. I don't want to seek counsel from an unbeliever, unless perhaps it's in real estate or something, which I'm not involved in, but for my spiritual growth to see flaws in my life, to have those flaws pointed out. My, you know, my wife serves first and foremost is my friend to, to point out the flaws. There's plenty. <laughs> but I need my brothers, amen? I go to them. Sometimes I don't even have to go to them. They'll just point it out. That's love. That's love. See, fellowship means that we share something in common. What do we share in common? reconciliation with God. We've been reconciled to God. You've been reconciled to God. We share that in common. That's what makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. They dedicated themselves to the word of God and to, to true fellowship. I'm always very suspicious 
when, when a Christian spends more time, you know, with my boys, you know, these are my boys from the hood, these are my peeps, and they almost run away from fellowship with fellow believers. Very curious. Makes me suspicious. These Christians were very conscious of their unity, the family of God, the household, the body of Christ, household of faith, sharing together. There's nothing individualistic about Christianity, friends. Amen? Fellowship isn't smiling at my brother across the room, and then that's it. It's more than that, as we'll see. This is what made up the majority, this is what made up the first century church, and I'm delighted to say makes up the majority of Pacific Hope Church. You, you people, seriously, reflect this. So you should be greatly encouraged this morning to, to continue on. Amen? This is a rich fellowshipping church, and I'm, I'm delighted by the fruit within this body. So worship, devotion to Christ is vertical, providing for us the horizontal aspect of this kind of fellowship we share in together. The second flows out of the first. Vertical is first, horizontal second. Now notice this fellowship includes number three, devotion to the breaking of bread. Two significances here. Certainly the Lord's Supper is in view, but I believe uh, it has more to do, and the primary context has to do with fellowship meals, dinner together. Eating together, it's one of the most intimate ways to fellowship, amen? Intimate form of fellowship. I believe that the early church gave birth to potluck dinners. <laughs> this is what they did. That's what we do. We try to do that once a month. It's good. And those of you who don't come, man, saddle up. <laughs> saddle up, hunker down. We'll let you first in the line. So whatever you, know, you normally, whatever your favorite food is, you can get to it first. So we invite you if you don't come. See, we're a people who are going to participate in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Therefore, we need to practice. Lord's table, definitely, and fellowship meals with one another. This is what they did. It's beautiful. Okay, so that's number three. Number four is the church's devotion to prayer. Simply put, to be in this community was to be a praying community. Certainly, they had set times of prayer. They had the psalms that they would pray. I did an 18-week study on the theology and application of prayer. It's on our website if you, have, if you struggle with prayer. And we have the Lord's Prayer as a template how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a template of how to pray. So... Jesus, remember, he went into the temple and he said, my father's house is a house of prayer for all the nations. So we have a praying church that, that should band together corporately and be on our knees individually. And for those of you who are members, we have our membership guide. And that's not only so you know who one another are in the church, by name perhaps, but you can open that up and pray for other people throughout the week praying church. Uh, before service on the first Wednesday of every month. Not, no, we have prayer time before service on Sundays, 
And then on Wednesday, the first Wednesday of every month, we, we just started again our corporate prayer night once a month. Uh, last month, we had seven people. You know what that tells me? There's room for more. <laughs> Doesn't tell me anything negative about anybody. It just tells me there's room for more. So we'll see you on May, whatever it is. First week, first Wednesday. Okay, notice now verse 43, we're wrapping up. We're coming in to home plate here. Verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostle, apostles. Now, this is one of those descriptive parts, not prescriptive. There are no more apostles. We're no longer living in an age of signs and wonders that were done by the apostles because the apostles are all in heaven. We read throughout Acts and the New Testament. These were signs of an apostle, signs of an apostle to validate the message they were preaching. The New Testament hadn't been written yet and to validate their office as apostle for there were many false apostles. So the true apostle who would come in and preach, you have apostle come through that door, says he's an apostle. One who comes through that door says he's an apostle. And there's apostle who was a true apostle that perhaps would come through the center doors. They would all preach a different message. How did you know who was the true apostle? The one who manifested signs and wonders after they preached. There's no need for that any longer. We have the whole counsel of God, the canon closed. Now to know who's telling the truth. You listen and you test what he says in light of the text. So descriptive, not prescriptive. Verse 44, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. This is also descriptive. This is not communism. This is not socialism. It's not a call for that. <laughs> Imagine if it was, okay? We call all you in, you know, hey, go get all your possessions and all your real estate documents. We're going to put it all in a pile and share it. Most of you, it would scare to death. Others would be delighted. <laughs> I'll leave that for you to decipher. But let me tell you this. Forms of socialism always sound like a good idea to the less than enthusiastic worker. In our own society, we live under government-imposed socialism. Wealth is redistributed by the government. You can vote a tax on others and not on yourself. Really? Don't do that. <laughs> they call it social justice. It's a form of robbery. Never in the Old Testament or the New is owning private property prohibited. We'll see it show up in Acts 5 when God strikes two people dead. They had the right to private property. Under the Old Covenant, they had the right to private property. We still have the right to private property. What we see here on display is generosity. That's what we see. Many of them were poor. Some of them were rich. Persecution was starting to, to stir up. So they shared all things in common. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. And, and I'll say this. Here at Pacific Hope Church, 
Many of you give very generously. It's obvious that some of you have adhered to the principle of giving a tenth. Okay, we're not commanded under the new covenant to tithe, amen? Is that clear? Okay, we're not commanded under the new covenant to tithe. But let me tell you something I learned from my father. What I learned from my father was generosity. A man who did not make a whole lot of money, but I learned from him about giving a tenth off the top. I watched him write the check every week before church. I'm scratching my head. I mean, that's a lot of money for a railroad man. I'd see my father give the neighbor across the street. He, he, he wrote him a $1,000 check because their, their, their hus- the, the husband died, and they were struggling. So generosity I learned from my father. And he would remind me, we're not, we're not ordered, commanded under the new covenant to, to give a tenth. But let me tell you this, son, it's a great place to start for those who are under the new covenant. Ooh, it got quiet. <laughs> Anybody can be a giver. We're told that God loves cheerful giver. Cheerful giver. Those who love to express their gratitude by giving what most people have difficulty letting go of, money. All right? But giving is always a matter of one's heart. Never should you give out a compulsion. Just keep it. Just keep it. Verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. That's the key. Sincerity of heart. If you don't have a sincere heart, and I'm using myself as an example, many times I find myself, I'm not, I'm not being sincere. So what do I do with that? Go to the source. God, I, you know, I'm not very sincere. Like, I, I, I know I might appear to be out here in this particular situation, but inside, I, I'm not very sincere. Help me with my insincerity. Amen? Because we have the Spirit of God. Oh, I guarantee he will help. I guarantee he will help. I'm reading a little book right now. It's just tearing me to shreds. It's this little book. It's called uh, A Small Book About a Big Problem. And it's the problem of anger. And anger manifests itself in many, many ways that we don't really realize. I'm not just talking about rage like that. It manifests itself in different ways. And Ed Welch, the author, is is through Scripture just, just breaking down how anger shows up and how it's a substitute of trust in God, for trusting God. Just ripping me to pieces. Good or bad? Great. (laughs) Great. It's a sanctifying process in my own personal life. But the same is true. Look, if if, if you don't feel sincere, pray to God. Go to the source. So here we see the the heart of, the the characteristics of, the the, the evidence of devotion to Christ in this text. The devotion of a Christian shows up by way of being word-centered, worshipful, one who anticipates being together with God's people to be prayerful and generous and thankful. Do we see that? Nothing is more uncharacteristic of a Christian 
than one who's not word-centered, who's, who, who yawns at biblical exposition, who rarely attends, who's unthankful, who's contentious, who's greedy, or who is thankless and prayerless. Uncharacteristic of a believer. We'll get to a little application in a minute. If change needs to take place, and change always needs to take place in our lives, does it not? That's why I love that little book on anger. I, I highly recommend it, by the way. Because you'll read it. Well, I don't have a problem with anger. When you read it, you'll go, ooh, I do have a problem with anger. <laughs> oh, I have a problem, all right. Deep in my soul. Verse 47. And the Lord was adding, notice, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the kind of growth church we want, beloved where the Lord adds to the church. This is what we want to be interested in. He adds to the church day by day. The emphasis here, notice, is on the Lord. He adds. So just do what he says. Preach the word. Give yourself to fellowship one to another. Break bread together. Pray. Amen. It's right here. We shouldn't have an emphasis, the church that is, on programs. Wasted money on flyers. You know, come and visit us. We're the best church in town. You know, I've said before, we're not the only show in town, beloved. Amen? There's nothing special about us. But let us be given to the first things first. Jesus, he adds to the church, and that's what we want. You know, over the years... I become more and more convinced of just how simple church life is or, or should be. It's, it's really not that complicated. God condescends in very simple ways, and he says, look, if you do this, this, and this, you have my blessing. This is it, Acts 2.42. You'll have God's blessing. And you, he says, will be a faithful church. In other words, this is not rocket science, beloved. This is simple. God condescends. He goes, here's Christian Life 101, Acts 2, 42. You know, his church is not to resemble corporate America. We don't adopt, you know, Nike's philosophy on business or Apple's philosophy, Fortune 500 companies. No, it's Acts 4, 2, 42. Telltale characteristics of a spirit-filled church. Amen? Almost done. So here then, this passage sets up the priorities of our Christian life. Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. Right there. So question. Third question of the morning. Considering these four elements, would you say, as you have sat here for the last 54 minutes... Would you say that you are devoted to these four things? Okay, not that you acknowledge these four things. Not that you agree with these four things as being acceptable. But are you devoted to these four things? Do these four things mark you out as a Christian? Because the aim of teaching is not merely to know, but to grow for all of us.
Very important. Devotion to Christ expresses itself like this question, how is your devotion to Christ? Where is your devotion? To what are you devoted? There are many good things to be devoted to, amen? But what we're talking about is priorities. So here's the applicable point. The way this can be measured is by an inventory of our time. What do we do with our time? Our activities, our our calendar, perhaps our checkbook. What are the priorities of my life as I sit under God's word, Acts 2.42? We need the example of the early church to blow out the cobwebs. Amen? To, to, To blow away assumptions within our minds. The word of God. So let us, beloved... Stir one another up to these things, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, because God hates that. Not under compulsion, but joyfully. He loves it when his people are glad to be in the house of the Lord. He loves it when his people enjoy fellowshipping together with gladness of heart. Coming to the Lord's table together, he loves it as they grow together in these things. Amen? So may we continue, beloved, to grow in such ways, delighting in all that he has done for us. And he's done a lot. He loves you. He will always love you. And he calls you to these things for the glory of his name and for your own good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I ask that you would increase the devotion of the devoted. Perhaps grant devotion to the lazy. Add to your number here this morning any who don't know you by the power of your spirit. Encourage the faint-hearted. Strengthen all of us who are weak in some way, and many of us in many ways. And let us rest in our Sabbath rest, our Lord Jesus Christ, to stand up and walk in this grace, participating in the household of faith with one another for the glory of the head of the church, Um, your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.